In times of trouble, people look for a hero. In the place that we find ourselves, what is a hero? But by his nature, we have a God who is triumphant over all. His sovereignty reigns, for God can subdue all things to himself. The one who has formed you from the beginning is our stronghold. So don't look any further, for he is the redeemer of your life. He is the king of kings and is worthy of all our praise, for he is mighty, 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 mighty. Hey, so glad you could join us. We are starting a new series called Mighty. Um, one of the things that we, as I think the global church, do a really good job at is talk about the love of God. We talk about the forgiveness, those nurturing uh, aspects of the or attributes of the character of God. I have been leaning into this whole idea of Him being enormous uh, for the last while in terms of my own journey. And, and I just think it's important that while we honor and we dive into the nurturing side of who God is, we can't lose sight of the enormousness of God and, and the, the, well, the mightiness of God. There's a word that gets used in Hebrew. The word is El Shaddai. Uh, the word El means God. It, it is the ancient Mesopotamian word for God. It gets used in a variety of different of what you would call the Semitic uh, people groups. And, and so the word El is this idea of, of like the God, the ultimate being. The word um, Shaddai is the idea that he is the one who is able to overpower, the one who is in control of all things, the one who is able to sustain, the one who is able to accomplish. El Shaddai. And so it's often translated as Almighty God or God Almighty, or the Almighty. And we hear this expression within the scriptures, and El Shaddai is something that is powerful and amazing, and it gives us a, a really solid understanding, I think, of the, well, the mightiness of God, really. Um, God can subdue all things to himself is the indication. So he reveals himself as the one who compels nature to do the things that he wants it to do. And he can triumph over every obstacle and all opposition. This is really good news when we talk about who God is and how that impacts life and what it does for us and what it does to our worship, all those sorts of things. And so you have these two words that make a compound word, El Shaddai. Within these two words, we have this picture of the unity of God watching over us with the power and nature to care for us. So not only is he all-powerful, is he mighty, that he can subdue all things, but he's also the sustainer of all of it. And so he can take care of all those needs that we will have. And so the word here refers to this idea of a hero. A hero. I truly believe that in times of trouble, people look for a hero. And in our faith, within the Christian worldview, Jesus is our hero. We are never the hero of the story. Jesus is our hero. And so as we 
go forward into this series, we're going to be looking at different phrases, different words that are used to describe God. And the intention behind it is to understand that Jesus is our hero and he is worthy of our worship. That's pretty awesome. So if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to start with the first word. Uh, we're going to start with the word sovereign or sovereignty. And this is a language that maybe you'd be familiar with, maybe not. Uh, but this particular passage of Scripture will give you exactly the indication of what it means. Psalm chapter 24. Psalm chapter 24. And if you don't know where the book of Psalms is in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People work really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Psalm 24, and I'm just going to read verse 1. And again, you'll understand what sovereign means after I read this. Here we go. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Jesus, that as we are looking into your word and looking into what it means for you to be sovereign, may it impact our understanding of you in deeper ways. May our respect for you grow, our honor of you grow, may our worship of you grow, and certainly, Lord, our dependency on you to grow as well. May we be a people who lean less on self and more on you. In your name I pray, amen. So let me give you a little bit of context here. Uh, sort of a, a context summary. You have Psalm 24, verse 1 through 6, that sort of affirm and, and, and declare what John says in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Um, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where we're talking about the creation account, right? Where, where God makes everything, that God created everything. Psalm 15 kind of echoes this truth taught in Psalm 24, verses 4 to 6. And Matthew 5, 6 to 8 kind of reinforces the fact that only the righteous can see God. And so tradition says that this psalm was written when David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant back from Obed-Edom's house in 2 Samuel chapter 6. So let's just dive right into it then. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This is a declaration of God owning everything. Now, this is important. He owns absolutely everything, not just the creative work itself in terms of what we see in nature, but understand this. You and me, we're owned by him. He owns us. And that's not always a comforting thought because let's consider this. If everything belongs to the Lord, right? Everything, the world and all who live in it, that is believer and non-believer. That is those who would honor the Lord and those who would not honor the Lord. We're all His. All of it. Now think about that for a moment. We are His possession, and yet He gives us this decision-making ability as to whether or not we will be in relationship with Him. But what can be done with us, what happens with us in life, well, we're owned by Him. He is in charge. Of all of it. A biblical definition of this is the idea of the word sovereign. It means that there is, an, there is absolutely nothing that happens in the universe that is outside of God's influence and authority. Catch that? That is outside of his influence and authority. As King of Kings and Lord of Lords, we're going to talk about next week, God has no limitations. None whatsoever. And consider just a few claims that the Bible makes about God. 
in uh, in Revelation 21, verse 6, we read this idea that God is above all things and He's before all things. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is immortal. He is present everywhere so that everyone can know Him. Revelation 21, 6. That God created all things and He holds it together, both heaven and on earth, both visible and invisible. Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. And that God can do all things and accomplish all things. Jeremiah 32, 17, right? Like nothing is too difficult for him. Nothing, like he orchestrates and he determines everything that's going to happen in life. Everything. In my life, in Canada, in your life here, throughout the world, whatever he wants to do with the universe, he does because nothing is impossible with him. He is sovereign. He's in charge. He made it. He owns it. He can do whatever he wants with it. That's who he is. God's sovereignty makes him superior to all other gods that were ever known in that day. And even in our day. And it makes him alone worthy of worship. So Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, means that it's his. He's in charge of all of it, and nothing happens that isn't within his purview. Nothing happens that doesn't have his influence in some fashion over it. Now, I understand that that can be a really uncomfortable thought when we start thinking about some of the negative things that happen in life. I get that. God being in charge of all things and being an influencer in all things, the one who allows things means that he's going to allow for free will. In allowing for free will, it means that you can do things to me, I can do things to you. We are responsible for that. It's not God's fault, but his influence on it is the fact that he gave us the free will to enact in the first place. Really uncomfortable thought, but he's ultimately in charge of everything. He's God. We're not. So God's sovereignty makes him superior to all other gods and makes him alone worthy of worship. Psalm chapter 24, verse 2 says, For he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters, talking about his creation, talking about the land. And it takes us back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, empty and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, this may seem like a a pretty straightforward passage, but what a lot of people don't know is that in the day that Moses was writing down this creation account, there was another creation account that was well known, and it was known as the Babylonian epic, called Enuma Elish. And Enuma Elish just really means uh, went on high or from on high. And so it states that there existed initially a god by the name of Apsu, who was the freshwater god, and a god by the name of Tiamat, who was the saltwater god. And these were the gods of the deep. The deep is typically a language that's uh, um, describing the waters, and they were the gods of the deep. And so they decided, well, they were going to raise a family of gods. And so in raising this family of gods, uh, these gods became unruly. They were loud. They were obnoxious. And Apsu just got frustrated. Apsu got angry. And he wanted to get rid of them. He just wanted them 
gone. And so what ultimately happens is that Apsu resolves to destroy his children and they revolt. And in revolting, you have this chaos that ensued. And then, of course, they have their own creation account in that, you know, one of the children of the gods, you could say, by the name of Marduk, who was the chief god of Babylon, came and slew Tiamat with the other uh, gods with him, his siblings, and slew Apsu. And out of the carcass of Tiamat created the, um, the universe, created the the land and and of the blood created people and and the intention was that people would then serve the gods we were slaves to the gods but by stating that the spirit of god was hovering over the surface of the deep over the surface of the waters moses is saying that the god of israel is above apsu above tiamat the ultimate gods of the day And so what Moses is doing here is saying, listen, the God of Israel is the ultimate God. He is the creator God. No, there aren't any of these other gods. No, that that mankind was not created to be enslaved to God. That he was above them, that the ultimate gods of Babylon were inferior to the God of Israel. And so what's happening here in this passage is that there is this breaking down of an understanding of who God is. He's immense. I mean, he is so big that our inability to fathom him should bring us to a place of worship. Not understanding every aspect of who God is doesn't discredit God. It positions us in the appropriate place. Because if we could understand every aspect of his being, he couldn't be God because he would fit. This little head. That doesn't make a lot of sense. Psalm 24, verses 3 to 6, it says, Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who will stand, who may stand in his holy place? The one who has a clean who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false God. They will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, their Savior. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, God of Jacob. And so David in the psalm, after establishing that God is the one in control of all things, he is above all things, he is ultimate, he then begins to ask a question, okay, so who can even approach this God? And so he asks this basic question, and he wonders who can climb the hill of worship to this tabernacle on the hill, because remember, this is still with the understanding that God's dwelling place is within the tabernacle. And who can enter into the Lord's presence? And David pictures this ascending up with Israel to Jerusalem where he would put the Ark of the Covenant into this holy place and that he had built to house the representation of God's presence. This is significant. Who can stand in the presence of this sovereign, holy, ultimate God? And his thoughts turn to the kind of person that must be allowed to be in the presence of God. And so you know that this is powerful, that this God is powerful because of verses 1 and 2, but it's hinted at in verse 3 as well, right? Who may ascend the mountain of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place. And it's this language of, man, like who's even worthy of this? The place in which the presence 
His presence will reside as holy. And because of that, the people who enjoy His presence must themselves be holy. So verse 4, verse 4 says, The one who has clean hands and pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by false gods. And so in verse 4, David's kind of answering his own question on this. Like, So here's God. He's sovereign. He's ultimate. He's amazing. Who can stand in His presence? And then he begins to answer his own question. And he's basically saying here, those who enjoy God's presence must be holy like He is holy. And he begins to start to talk about some basics. He says, the one who has clean hands. So hands in the Bible represent our actions. You do things with your hands. So these are our actions. And and if if hands are representative of our actions, then then the whole idea here is that, that the one who has these actions, these activities in life that are honoring to him, that are pure, you could say. The heart represents the inner man, right? So he says not only, you know, um, talking about just these clean hands, but it's a pure heart. The heart represents the inner man. This is the idea where our thoughts and our, our emotions are coming out of. And so you feel and you think things with your heart in Judaism. And so who's allowed to go into God's presence? What kind of person is it? Well, the things he does and the ways he thinks are clean. They're pure. They're, they're not defiled. They're not filthy. They, they don't leave him feeling dirty. It's the, uh, the characteristic actions and thoughts of the one who enjoys God's presence are clean and pure. What else is this person like? Well, the one who's clean hands and pure hearts, who does not trust in an idol or swear by false gods. And so the idea here is, hey, you're not going to trust an idol. So there's no other God before God. Uh, There's not going to be the things that I'm going to be dethroning God and putting in his place. So it's not going to be me. It's not going to be my pride. It's not going to be my family. It's not going to be my work. It's not going to be my possessions. I will not trust in an idol. I will not seek to place my confidence in something apart from God. And we have pure speech. So the person who enjoys God's presence is also one who speaks truth. Not only are their actions and thoughts clean, but so are their words. He doesn't speak empty words, and when they promise something, they do it. They imitate God in these ways. And and let's be clear. Our words, the, the clean words that this is talking about here, the, the swearing by a false god or swear falsely is another way that they, they talk about it, um, that our words matter and, 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 and they give a sense of where our hearts are at. It's not just about foul language. It's not just about coarse jokes. It's how do you talk about other people? What is the intention in our speech? Paul I believe understanding passages like this in Ephesians 4.29 says, uh, let no unwholesome work proceed from your mouth, but only that which is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Like those are the words. That is the speech of the person who's able to come before God. And so you could say very accurately about this sovereign God that our response to him is that we are to honor God 
in our actions, in our thoughts, and in our words. All of it. Lord, help me to honor you in everything that I do, everything that I think, that I feel, and that I say. And that kind of person, dealing with that sovereign God, that kind of person is rewarded by the Lord, according to verse 5. Verse 5 says, they will receive a blessing from the Lord and vindication from God their Savior. From God their Savior. I mean, think about that. I'm going to receive vindication from the Lord, God their Savior. So the accusations about our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our words, they're vindicated by God our Savior. See, this is part of what it means for him to be sovereign. It's not just that he owns everything. It's not just that he's in charge of everything and that he can do what he wants. He sustains. And so when it talks about him as our Savior, as our Redeemer, as the one who is able to do things, the one who is the overpowerer, he redeems us. He absolutely redeems us. Because he is our savior. He vindicates. And this is the reward we get. This is the reward. In Psalm 27, verses 7 to 10, it says this. Um, and, and there's interesting language here. It says, lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord Almighty. He is the King of glory. And so David is appealing to Jerusalem in this. He says, make room for your King to enter in. Lift up your heads, you gates. It's uh, Nowadays, we would, we would say, like, you know, when we got um, people of notoriety, people who are dignitaries, prominent dignitaries, like maybe a royal person would come into the city that you're in or the national uh, capital. There's going to be a flurry of activity that's taking place before their arrival. Traffic is cleared. Flags are hoisted. Uh, and security is enhanced. They're making way for this person to come in. There's this honoring of the person coming in. They are prepared for their coming. They are ready. They're focused. They understand who it is that is coming and the respect that is considered due them. Every precaution is taken to welcome the distinguished visitor. And David calls to the gates, which is this poetic summons to the whole city, to welcome the king of glory. So here he is, the Lord God Almighty, sovereign. He is the deliverer. He is the one who is able to do more than we could ever think or imagine. He is the one who is, again, vindicating as Savior. He is the sustainer of things. He's coming. And David is saying to Jerusalem, lift up your heads, you gates. Open and welcoming your king. 
And so when we welcome the king of glory, if we want to take this and we move it from this idea of Jerusalem and David's challenge to Jerusalem, and I think in a challenge for us as well, when we welcome this king of glory, I, I want to suggest you, like there's a lot of different things that can come out of that. But there's two things that I really want to focus on. And one of them is this, it gives me courage to face my days. If God is the one who owns it all, he owns you, he owns me, he owns everything around us. If he is the sustainer of all these things, in other words, he owns the air we breathe. If he takes the air away, we stop breathing. He is the sustainer of all of these things. He makes them happen. It gives me courage to face my days. Courage to face my days. The command that we hear often repeated throughout the Bible by God or angels is fear not. And what basis should we be fearless? Matthew 10, 29 to 31. And I love this because again, this is talking about God as the sovereign God who sustains his people. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. I mean, you can have confidence to face your day. And I don't know what kind of days you're having. You know what I do know? That the one who made everything sustains everything. The one who created it owns it. And so we can have confidence in him as the one who cares and is able to sustain. Again, sparrows don't fall to the ground without him knowing we're more valuable than sparrows. There are events and circumstances in our lives that are beyond our control and fear and worry can kick in. I, I, I want us to understand that when we, when we worry, when we're fearful, then we're like in that space and time, we're not trusting that God is sovereign. We're not trusting that he is ultimately in control because we so desperately want that control. When we're fear and when we're worrying, we fear and we worry because we don't know what's coming or maybe we're scared of what we think might be coming. We feel like we're out of control, but when we're in control of things, we feel more secure. And that's the lie because we're not actually in control of anything. Jesus says, whoever you can add an hour to your day by worrying. In other words, you don't even know what's coming an hour from now. But he does. And so when our worlds feel chaotic, when things are just a mess with our relationships, our finances, our work, our, ourselves, we're out of control. But he isn't. And so we can lean into him strongly. And when I see that he is there in the details, that he is in control of all things, that he's directing and he's ruling them from his glory seat, and he's doing this for his glory and for my good, then I'm strengthened and I have the courage to then obey him and trust that he's going he's to take care of me. That's a good place to be. 
So I want to suggest to you that the sovereignty of God gives us confidence to face the day. The second thing that I believe is that it deepens our confidence in Him. God's question in Lamentations 3.37 gets to the crux of the subject. He says this, Who can speak and have it happen if, it, if the Lord has not decreed it? Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord had not decreed it? In other words, if God didn't want it to take place, if God says, no, it's not going to happen, nothing I say is going to change that. Who can speak and have it happen if the Lord had not decreed it? Nothing happens outside of his purview. And again, I know that that makes us uncomfortable, but he's sovereign. If no plan of God's can be thwarted by human actions or acts of nature, that he is worthy to be trusted with every fiber of my being. So I believe that it gives me courage to face my day and it gives me a further confidence in him. And I need us to think about that. He is huge. He is almighty. He is El Shaddai. He is the mighty one, the overpowerer, the one who sustains everything and is able to nurture it all he's sovereign and because he's sovereign i can have the courage to face my day and i can have more confidence in him but let's be clear my ability to have courage to face my day because of him and having more confidence in him because of who he is those aren't the point the point is he's god he is el shaddai He is the overcomer. He is the sustainer. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So as David approaches Jerusalem and he challenges Jerusalem to lift their heads like the gates, lift your gates and welcome in the king, my question for us today is just really straightforward. It's really simple. Will you lift your gates and acknowledge God's sovereignty in your life? Will you, will, will you submit your will to His willingly? You see, He's in control regardless. But will you submit your will to His? Will you recognize His sovereignty and the fact that He's so much bigger than us, knows so much more than us? that we're His, and because of that, He sustains us. We're worth more than these sparrows. He's got us. I mean, that just talks about how amazing He is. He is El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one who overpowers. As a man, that is something that resonates with me. The fact that he is the one who overpowers. The fact that he is above Apsu and Tiamat. The fact that he is ultimate. He is God Almighty. He is sovereign. Can never be reduced. And yet, he elects to sustain. I can have confidence to face my day. And I can have more confidence in him. Will you let the Lord be sovereign in your life? Jesus said it this way. If you love me, obey my commands. In other words, if you love me, you'll show it 
by showing that I'm in charge. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for our time together. And I pray, Lord, that, you know, as we go through this series and we consider what it means for you to be mighty, and specifically today, Lord, this sovereignty that you are El Shaddai, you are the almighty God, the one who overpowers, the one who sustains everything, that everything is yours, that you created all things. You alone are worthy of worship. Lord, would you give us a glimpse of how enormous you are and that there is none like you, none that can be compared to you, and that you would receive our worship as our hearts and minds and everything about us turns more towards you. In your name I pray. Amen.